Hi, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us here at CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, the Executive Director of CIO Programs here at CIO Events and IDG, and I am delighted today to be welcoming Basque Iyer here uh, for our interview. As many of you know, he is the Executive Vice President and CIO of both VMware and Dell Technologies, and has new additions to his role as a general manager of the Edge and Internet of Things computing for both Dell and VMware. Basque joined VMware back in 2015 as its CIO, and by late 2016, he had taken on a dual role as Dell's CIO as well, along with the daunting task of integrating these two companies in the largest tech merger in history. The latest addition to his CIO Plus role is this general manager of Edge and IoT, which he likens to a chief customer officer type of role. With this latest responsibility also comes the birth of a new business unit that's focused on selling Edge computing and IoT. Basque has more than 25 years of experience driving change in traditional Fortune 100 manufacturing companies as well as Silicon Valley tech companies such as Juniper Networks. Before Juniper, he was the CIO at Honeywell and the e-commerce leader at GlaxoSmithKline Beecham. Among his many industry honors, he was inducted into our CIO Hall of Fame in 2017. One of my favorite quotes from Basque is about the IT disruptions and how he likens them as coming in waves. And he says, riding those waves is much like surfing. It's important to keep the wave in front of you. One of the waves we'll be talking about today is the way that enterprise digital transformations are being driven by powerful technological breakthroughs in cloud and mobility. His fellow C CIOs, when he's giving advice, he wants them to resist the temptation to get too pragmatic and respond as if we've seen this one before, because in many ways, we haven't. Welcome, Basque. It's delightful to have you here. Thank you, Mary Fran. Good to be here. Yes. All right, let's tackle that first one about responding too much with a ho-hum, another digital transformation. We've seen all this before. What's happening today that we haven't seen before? I think the, the compute uh, is at a stage where it's, uh, you know, changing exponentially. And humans have a problem with exponential change, mm -hmm. right? If, you, if it's a linear change, we're able to say, in the next two years, this is what is going to happen. Yeah. But when exponential changes start happening, it's very difficult to predict. And, and things are happening a lot faster. So that's why I don't want to have the hubris to think we have seen this before. You haven't seen this pace of change before. Okay. Um, so if you take a vacation and come back, it's going to be all different. Uh, and so this continuous learning mm -hmm. and keeping up with the technology and, and not have this hubris uh, set in is probably important. Okay, okay. Let's, we'll get more into that as we get through our conversation here. But I wanted to zero in first on the, the changes to your roles. I, most of the CIOs I talk to start there, especially once they're three plus years in at a company, they start out with a, you know, usually they're brought into a burning building, there are things to fix, there's foundational elements to get in place, and then the role gradually grows and adds more business strategy to it and that sort of thing. Um, but you keep taking on entire new roles because you, you're actually straddling the IT strategic operations for both Dell and VMware. Uh, talk a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, there is like a sort of a Maslow's law of hierarchy in, mm -hmm. in a CIO job. Um, you cannot go strategic 
before the operational things are fixed. So any job I've taken on, even they interview and tell me that, hey, we don't need help on the operational side, that trains are running on time. Mm -hmm. We just need a strategic person. And that is never true. You always join <laughs> and you find that the trains are not quite on time, the Wi-Fi is not working, the network is yeah. not working. And if you try to not fix that and go strategic, then your CEO may be happy with you, but the rest of the organization and your peer group, you know, they don't respect you. Mm -hmm. So I always believe that the basics have to be sorted. Mm -hmm. But then you can't keep on working on basics. You quickly have to shift the strategy. Uh, it's almost like if your trains are running on time, don't talk about the trains running on time. Mm -hmm. But if the trains are not running on time, don't talk about strategy because, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. The IT role is still a, the nervous system, the digital nervous system of the company. Things have to work. So every job, including VMware, when I took this job, people told me everything is fine. You just have to come and make it more strategic. Uh, it was not quite fine. So you have to fix yeah. the ERP system, the network, and so mm -hmm. on. And then uh, the, I'm a good B student. So you need to know when to transition from that quickly to more strategic things. Yeah. Uh, what's also true is if your if your operations falls apart, you have to go back to operations. You start back there, fix the operations, because nobody wants to wants you to talk about digital transformation when when people are not getting laptops on time or the network is not connecting or the right. data center is not working. Right. Right. Well, I, I think that often that and that notion that a CIO can kind of swan into any company and suddenly be a strategic partner, it, we belie that all the time with human nature because the trust isn't there yet. That's right. You know, the trust you have that, to develop with your C-suite partners. Yeah, it always starts there. I mean, I, I you can't demand a role, uh, seat at the table. That doesn't happen. You mm -hmm. can even be part of executive committee. And I know a lot of people spend a lot of time in, in that. But mm -hmm. You need to earn the trust, right? So the executive, it's not just the CEO. The, the whole executive committee has to trust you. They have to think of you as a trusted partner. You have to roll up your sleeves and add value. Yeah. And then, you know, you can start playing the strategic role as well. Okay. Well, when we were talking about this new addition to your role, where you're the general manager of Edge and IoT for Dell, uh, you called that, uh, that role as customer number one for VMware and Dell. Uh, explain what that means. So every company has this, they call it dog fooding. They have this program where they mm -hmm. use the products that, that they make, which yeah. is good. Yeah. But that's still stakes, right? So if you are, if you don't use your own products, then what do you really say? So that is, that used to be a big strategic uh, thing about a few years ago that you run your own products. Mm -hmm. But then that's table stakes. So you would expect me to use Dell computers. You would expect me to use VMware. Mm -hmm. And we do. But that's not really saying much, right? So what <laughs> yeah. do you do with that? Uh, and, you know, how do you do best practices with that? And, mm -hmm. and then finding out things that do not actually work the way we think it should work. Giving that feedback to R&D, product development. And then being the voice of your fellow CIOs to say, hey, don't oversell this product because there are 10 things that it doesn't do well. And these needs to be fixed before it's ready for prime time. Just builds a lot more credibility mm -hmm. within the CIO community and within the company. So... Um, so you, you become more or less the customer number one, we call it. So I, mm -hmm. I typically would use the product six, seven, eight months before anybody else does. Okay. And when a fellow CIO asks me about the company, I can tell you here are the five things that works extremely well. And here are one or two things that you should watch out. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing. You can, nobody believes that your product is so good, it's perfect, it works all the time, it's the best in the world. Right. That's not how real business people think, right? So... Mm -hmm. um, 
I actually believe being the you know kind of voice of the fellow CIOs, mm-hmm. uh, giving him confidence actually helps. Well, and I, I I find that CIOs are rightfully quite suspicious of what we in at uh, CIO Magazine used to call happy user stories, where you know, yeah. and you see them all the time, and you know the vendor magazines and that sort of thing, where it's just all working great and it saved the business and everything, and everybody is happy with it. And I've never run into anybody who really believes that. They're like, that's why people come to our conferences. They want to have those hallway conversations and find out, okay, what were the real problems? and how did you solve them? You know, and you mentioned, too, the CIO community and you being customer number one. Um, I thought it was really interesting. When you and I talked, you have kind of a private network of your own. You mentioned about 40 CIOs are in it and that you use them to validate uh, things that you're looking at and, and kind of early test marketing. Talk a little bit more about that. How formal is that process, or is that just a handful of your golf buddies that you send an email to? How does that work, Basque? It's actually built. I mean, it's a it's a trusted friends we've built over the years, yeah. uh, and more people get added to it, and some people are active and some people not active. They get added to it. It's an informal network of folks. Mm-hmm. And what happens is we don't really read as much of the analyst reports and other kind of things to form our opinion. It's contrary to what vendors think. If I want to know about a product, or a technology, I call a few of my friends yeah. and say, hey, is this real? Mm-hmm. Would you buy this product? And it's it's very binary. If the person says yes or no, then I don't buy it or, or buy it. Right? It's very influential. Mm-hmm. It's a survival mechanism that we've built to say there's so much vaporware and hype and trends and so on. So we, you need to have a trust network of folks yes. that you call. And we even talk very honestly about our own product. So I, you know, mm-hmm. somebody calls me and says, Hey, I love VMware. Use it, but there are three things I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's not right. What do you What do you think? I am very honest with them. Yeah, I'm like, so surprisingly honest with them, and vice versa. So that's the kind of network we we look for. Even um, most of the recruitment I've done is also through that network. You know, I'm looking for a head of this uh, mm-hmm. CIO from operations, and they also call me. Almost every one of them. This includes a larger community of recruiters and specialists and, and CEOs, et cetera. And they'll call me and say, I'm looking for a CIO for a high-tech company or a large-scale company. Mm-hmm. And I call my network of folks to make the recommendation. Because a lot of cases, it's the right match as a personality and skill set. It's not just the skill sets. Right. So, so I mean, we're going to meet this week again with 10 of us. Uh, uh, and mm-hmm. we have a good time. We talk about each other's issues and problems. But mm-hmm. we are ready for a call at any time. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, and that's why you have a reputation, the reputation you do uh, as someone who is just a a straight shooter, uh, kind of honest about things that are going on. Um, The one of the things you said that you've been using this network of your friends and CIOs for is sanity checking uh, the whole concept of edge computing. And the way you put it to me, you said, well, I'm betting my career on this. So I'm running it by these guys and saying, how real is that? What, what do you mean by that? How are you defining edge computing? So let me, the best example I give is a lot of people know that there are two Mars rovers going in Mars. Yes. It takes about 13 minutes or so for communications to go back and forth sometime. Mm-hmm. Right? It takes a long time. So Because that's it, an edge that's pretty far out. It's a far edge. Yes. <laughs> it's far, far out. As we used to say, it's, a, it's a, one of the extreme edges. Yeah. But the Mars rover does communicate to the cloud and the Earth, but it still has to make decisions. It has to, it has a robot, got cameras, it has to collect data, it has to maneuver. Uh, so 
it's a, it's a fabulous device, uh, uh, and it's a fa space exploration is fabulous. That would be an extreme case of an edge case where the edge computing has to work there. They have to make decisions. There are mm -hmm. times when it has we cannot communicate at all to to Mother Earth, and it still has to operate. Mm -hmm. But then when it does communicate, it sends out the data, gets reprogramming, you know, uh, other kind of things. What's happening now is in I believe that I started my career a long time ago in manufacturing, robotics, and so on. And then we went through a phase where instead of automating, we just moved it overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now there's going to be a phase of automation and robotics and vision systems coming in that requires a lot of compute at the edge within a manufacturing framework and so mm -hmm. on. So while the cloud is going to continue to grow, I think the private data centers are going to continue to grow as well. And the edge cloud or edge computing is going to grow a lot mm -hmm. as we automate and try to do more things at the edge as well. Okay. So it's not one or the other. I believe all three kind of computing is going to grow. Mm -hmm. So as we looked at it, I talked to several CIOs to say, in the era of public cloud and cloud computing, you think you'll do anything on the edge or are you just going to hook it all up to, to a public cloud? Oh. And all of the, almost all of them said for several reasons, latency, mm -hmm. cost, uh, and for uh, efficiency, privacy, et cetera, they are going to have a lot of edge computing at the factories and branches and so on. Mm -hmm. So that was a good validation. I don't want to just read a magazine uh, and then or read a trend and then believe it's true. Yeah. I want to validate it with a set of folks. Uh, so I, I bet my career on this is going to be a big trend. It's going to happen mm -hmm. based on my network, if yeah. you will. When do you think uh, a lot of times things are underway in the computer industry for so many years and all of a sudden they will get the attention of the media and it will seem like it's this overnight sensation. Um, I, I have to smile when I see all the stuff about AI now because I can remember oh. 20 plus years ago we were making a big fuss about it in computer world and I, I know that you've seen that in your career as well. I, I think oh. of it as it's almost like our industry version of the overnight sensation in celebrity world. You know, there'll oh. be some some celebrity who suddenly is hot but was actually been working for 25 years. Is mm -hmm. edge computing in that category or are there specific things that or specific the rise of technologies and their affordability that is making it move more quickly now? I think edge computing, I would still say, is is not even in the hype cycle yet, right? It's, in, it's too early in a lot of okay. stages, mm -hmm. uh, but it is, it is coming and, and is... Uh, because the hype cycle has been taken over by other, compu other computing like AI or, or ML mm -hmm. uh, or automation, uh, you know, um, and so on. So I think I think edge computing has not even reached that stage, in my opinion. But it's a very real uh, kind of trend that is going to happen slowly and over time, and it's going to happen, you know, more and more and more. Okay. We want to be. I want to be there, you know, with it when it happens. Uh, so the most difficult thing about technology is we know it's going to happen, but timing is the issue. Is, is it going to happen in six months mm -hmm. or in two years? Mm -hmm. That's the difficult part. And that is when the hype cycle gets taken over. Uh, yeah. And you're very right about AI. That, that's something we all worked on 30 years ago, 25 years ago. I think the difference, again, not to be overly um, uh, dismissal about it, is what is happening now is, again, the rate of change of technology is pretty high. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of compute available at your hands, on your phone, yeah. at the edge, et cetera, that makes AI a little bit more practical than it used to be you know, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I struggled with vision systems. I used to make vision systems 30 years ago in companies like Johnson & Johnson. The computing was so poor, 
the algorithms were good, but so the human could do recognition <clears throat> faster than the computer can. Yes. Now computing is so high that a human cannot keep up with the, with edge computing or or with vision systems or AI. So that's why you you think it's more possible now because the computers are extremely powerful and they're getting better every day. Okay. Well, and this is a, a good on-ramp to talk a little bit about your new role, the, the general manager of, of IoT and Edge for Dell, and this has generated a new business unit. So, mm-hmm. so in that, and that also implies you have P&L responsibilities and that sort of thing. So this is, this is you back on the business operations side, not a CIO role. I, right. How much of your time is this going to take up? How big is this unit? Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I think it's going to take up. I've always done kind of dual roles. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, luckily for me, I have a great team now in, uh, in IT that pretty mm-hmm. much, you know, I've empowered and they run by themselves. So this is going to take a good 70, 80% of my time. Okay. Uh, because it's a revenue generating a unit. It's already generating revenue. Uh and it's about, you know, it's, it's, it's starting small, but it still grows pretty quickly. I can see already it hitting about a billion dollars worth of growth very, very, very soon. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's, it's going to depend on how good the technology is and how good we are as, as a company and me as a leader to take it even further. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about it is for most CIOs, I always argue that the CIOs were good general managers. Yes. They, they manage costs well. They manage vendors, building complex relationships, uh, interpersonal skills, etc. Uh, but they were never considered as general managers generally because, A, I think the main reason is you wanted good CIOs. So if you're a good CIO, people wanted you to be functionally excellent. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of us have tried um, to get into general management only to be pushed back into CIO role. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a critical thing. It's a good mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And, the, and the profession has done it well. So it's a good opportunity for us, you know, for me to, you know, actually get into PNL and, you know, manage the manage the product, develop a product, develop a sales team, mm-hmm. you know, talk to customers. The advantage I have is a lot of the customers are also most of them, not all of them, also fellow CIOs like me. Okay. Yeah. So that gives me a network of people I could talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but on this particular thing, there's also there's always a there's something called OT that we've ignored for a long time, operational technology yes. folks. Mm-hmm. So we talk about IT and the CIO role, but a lot of money is being spent on OT. Your facilities manager is buying a lot of technology. Mm-hmm. Your security, the, the physical security person is buying a lot of video surveillance and other kind of systems. Yes. Uh, your manufacturing person is buying a whole lot of systems that are very effective. In fact, my previous company, Honeywell, used to make a lot of money in industrial automation where they actually did not talk to the CIO at all uh, and sold a right. lot of computing and right. technology. So this is a good opportunity for this this business unit to bridge the OT and IT gap, if you will. You know, instead of making OT the shadow IT, you can kind of bridge the gap and right. make the IT be actually a, you know responsible or working in concert with the OT to mm-hmm. deliver value. So that's another one I'm excited to say that it'd be a good one to bridge. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned, too, that there's just more of a trend for CIOs to have uh, closer relationships with audit committees and boards these days. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the CIOs I talk to, especially the ones that are advanced in their careers, have started to take uh, seats on corporate boards. And there's just a real, there's a move toward that and definitely a desire for that to be a next career step. Uh, do you have board positions today? And is that something that you want more of them in the future? Yeah, I am on a board of uh, a company. I'm, I'm on both a 
I'm a technical advisor for several, you know, unicorn type of companies in mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, but I'm also on a public board. Uh, it's a fabulous experience. It gives you a, a good perspective of the you know, business uh, elements, and, and it's a good development opportunity is how I look. The two things I tell folks is uh, don't underestimate the amount of time required to be on the boards. So, I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, I don't want to be on 100 boards. I, don't, I think I can manage maybe two boards, and even that is going to be a stretch. So, yeah. I've, you know, I've turned down some of the opportunities just not because I didn't like it. I just didn't put in that the time because mm -hmm. it does take a lot of time. Yeah. And then, then fortunately or unfortunately, when you get on boards, you, you typically are put on audit committees, but you're also put on technology committees. Mm -hmm. Now they have this digital transformation committees that, that the boards get involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fabulous opportunity for CIOs to get in. Uh, I would say, I'm just surprised why more companies are not putting it in. I mean, uh, let, me, yes. let me give it this perspective. The only way, I think there's no such thing as, a, as an analog company anymore in my mind. Mm -hmm. Most companies are digital companies. Without some kind of digital technology or transformation, most companies would not deliver the shareholder value that the shareholders demand. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks have people who understand technology, but not people who have actually done it. Right. So, yes. so it'll almost be like you know, I have I know how to do math, that doesn't make me a CFO, right? Right. Uh, right. So just because you know how to use a technology or read about something, it doesn't make you a technologist because there are a lot of a lot of mistakes and risks that, that, that they, you can introduce by introducing new tech. Mm -hmm. So first, I would say is most boards should be looking at CIOs and CTOs to be on the, on the, on the boards. Absolutely. Secondly, I'll tell the CIOs to be um, very selective. You do get on, but don't, don't get too greedy on the first few years because it has, takes a significant amount of time commitment. Yeah. Well, I, you know that um, uh, it's a, a metaphor that we use for the CIO role where we talk about it being the helicopter role across the company and how you see all the other operations. I've, I've come I've just lately been thinking about the fact that the helicopter is not the right that it's not the right analogy because it implies this distance that the CIOs floating around above it all. But what I've heard more recently that I've kind of adopted as one of my new flags I wave is that IT is the central nervous system of companies. And I like I like the possibilities of that a lot more because of the way it's involved in everything. And that certainly is something that I think if more boards of directors realized that a bit more, that probably we wouldn't see such a small percentage of CIOs on boards. So that's something yeah. we all need to keep working on that, I think. Um, let's talk now about what you consider your top business and technology initiatives. And they may be things that you've assigned to the people that are running things for you in Dell and VMware while you're getting this new business unit spun up. But what are your biggest initiatives, both for VMware and for Dell right now? Yeah, I think in Dell, uh, we have this uh, thing called Dell Digital Transformation. That's the mm -hmm. biggest initiative. And, and what we mean by that is digital transformation is not just IT transformation. Uh, you know, in IT, we talk about agile development, faster development methodology, and so on. Mm -hmm. In Dell, you want the whole company to be agile. Yes. So pretty much like we had Lean and Six Sigma in, in the 90s to transform companies like Honeywell, GE, etc., you need, a, you need a methodology and a process and a way to transform companies to be adopted to the digital world. Mm -hmm. So in Dell, you know, IT is spearhead, and now we have created something called the Dell Digital Way, 
that goes across the company mm-hmm. and makes sure the business and everybody else works in the agile way, the modern way. Yeah. So, so that's that's the transformation of the entire business unit in a traditional uh, technology business, large scale. Mm-hmm. In, in VMware, we've got, it's a smaller company. We've gone through a little earlier, and we didn't have to have a formal process. We are in Silicon Valley, and so we kind of intuitively get what a digital transformation would be. Mm-hmm. It is just establishing the credibility with the, with the business folks. So we've gone through that without making a big fuss about it. <laughs> but if you're in a traditional company, you have to have a process and a, and a way of doing it. Yeah. But the number one priority in VMware would be something called SaaS transformation. So our business is going from a, what what is a traditional ELA type of business, which is still pretty important for CIOs, mm-hmm. to software as a service kind of business. So you can get everything that you buy from VMware as a service. That requires all internal processes and all internal things that we do in IT and finance and in business services, shared services, to transform completely. Yeah, it's so, a big business model transformation, isn't it? It has a lot a, less to do with the technology and more with all exactly. the people in the process, as you're fond of saying. Exactly. Yeah. So the IT is, is a, is a, you know, IT folks have to not only change the technology, they have to work to, to transform the business together in concert with the rest of the business. Mm-hmm. So that would be an example of a digital transformation for a VMware concept. Okay. Um, when you think about the way you set IT strategy, or maybe it's digital strategy, how do you use your bridge role as CIO of both companies to encourage that kind of collaboration uh, or the collaboration that is necessary? I know you have very supportive CEOs at both companies, but you, they still there are distinctions between the business models and the approaches and what's going on. So how do you, how do you juggle all of that? Yeah, let me explain a little bit. I think, uh, first of all, people assume it's a family. It is a family of companies, but VMware is not a subsidiary. It's not a business unit of Dell. It's no, an independent it's an company, company. Mm-hmm. That, that Dell is a big partner of, but it also works very closely with competitors of Dell. Yes. So it needs fierce independence. Mm-hmm. That's a separate CEO, separate divisions, a separate audit committee, et cetera. And they want to make sure that I'm working full-time on VMware. They don't really care that I work on the Dell. Okay. Uh, the Dell folks almost want something similar. They are they are forgiving of me of working on the VMware side a little bit, but they still want a Dell CIO. It's a big job. Mm-hmm. They are merging two companies, or they've just completed a successful integration of EMC and Dell. And you know, my role for the last year and a half has been working with the rest of them to integrate and put those two companies together. Yeah. So we had integrate two companies, maintaining the independence of VMware. You cannot cut and paste processes. You need to know the business priorities. How do you set priorities? You know, mm-hmm. you have to work with different committees and different CEOs, and they are different. So you need you need to kind of know that for, for Dell, it would be make, make sure that Dell and EMC are integrated, you know, without any uh, issues to the external customer. Mm-hmm. There are synergies you have to get by integration. So you can bring two companies together and increase costs. You know, you're looking at reducing costs and getting some synergies. Uh, you're trying to set up a showcase. For Dell of all the technologies Dell has, including VMware. You know, can you show me a private cloud, the best in class private cloud, the best in class end user computing, etc. Yeah. So those would be the priorities for for Dell, and and VMware would be more pushing more innovation, the, the SaaS transformation as I talked about, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you need to have you know there are two different business uh, initiatives. The underlying technology could be similar, not the same, but could be very similar. But the culture is also very different. So you, you have to look at your people process uh, mm-hmm. slightly differently. 
and, and this is probably why it, it helps me working in Honeywell, Johnson and Johnson, Blackstone, Klein, Juniper, etc. Because you don't, you can calibrate the culture uh, and your priorities based on you know what the actual company is. Well, it sounds like it would be very helpful if you had a twin brother. Well, <laughs> no, it would. The, the world cannot handle two Basques. It'd be very painful. <laughs> Enough of that idea, huh? Um, now, one of the things that you mentioned um, in a previous interview, we, we were talking about the age of Agile and how setting up to do it successfully is something that a lot of CIOs make initial mistakes with. So what are some of the errors and failures you've seen with companies either internally at Dell or VMware taking an Agile approach or with customers or people in your CIO network uh, what can go wrong with Agile? So let me just talk about my mistakes. So I, I, you know, I don't want to talk about other people's mistakes, but let me talk about a few that I've made. And I have a very okay. unique resume out of mistakes, so we can go on for a uh -huh. long time. The first was, you know, I guess I was appointed to be the CIO of Dell uh, from VMware, mm -hmm. so I could cut and replicate the successes in VMware. So I'm, I'm assuming yeah. Michael Bell and Pat Gelsinger thought, uh, you know, and Howard Elias, I thought they could just replicate the successes that I've done. Yeah. So I went in that mode to say, you know, we let's build the world's best hybrid cloud. Let's have the best end-user services technology. Let's have... So I went with mm -hmm. a lot of technology focus to say, you know, we've done it already. If you give it all to Dell, people will be delighted. We'll save a ton of money and we're done. Yeah. So, so in the first six months, I, I wasn't making as much progress as I wanted to, and I was frustrated with myself. And the first mistake you make is... You know, even experienced CIOs forget that it's people, process, and technology, mm -hmm. right? Because we all are results-oriented and say, enough of all this talking already. Just put this technology in place. You know, give me blockchain and get out of my way. So they tend it's to do it in reverse order, where it's technology, process, and then the people. That's right. Mm -hmm. So so I, and so then we had to take a step back, and so we took the people. The people approaches to, remember, we're bringing two companies together. The folks don't know which culture they're going to adopt, and... Yeah. and there's duplication of, uh, of uh, you know, management and layers mm -hmm. and layers of people. So we had to start with delayering, reducing the number of people, and then putting the steam back in technology, IT, as I talked about it. Mm -hmm. you know, put, uh, IT had gone so far away from technology focus that we had to make sure we hire technically competent people uh, and, uh, you know, all, all the way from leadership. And then the process that I talked to you about was digital transformation. Mm -hmm. So Agile is not about IT transformation. Well, it will help IT, but unless the business completely transforms into Agile, mm -hmm. you're just transforming a silo within the organization. Right. So we had to go through a complete end-to-end -end transformation of the business unit to Agile. You want Dell to be Agile. You mm -hmm. want the banks to be Agile and the IT department with it. Well, one of the things that often comes up when uh, talk of Agile starts, because I agree with you entirely, I think that the combination of technology people and business people on the product teams and the different focus instead of, you know, I, I love this move away from everything is an IT project and instead it's a business product. And mm -hmm. the way you look at a product life cycle is, is somewhat new for some people in IT, but it's an entirely different mindset. And that's when you're doing any kind of transformation, you actually have to transform the mindset. So right. um, that, and usually a discussion of this comes up and it's one of those, uh, those Gartner favorites with bimodal IT. Um, tell me what you think of the theories of 
bimodal IT, the idea that you have one group that's doing all the traditional foundational IT stuff at a slower pace, and then the agile DevOps teams, the fast-moving digital part of the IT organization. What do you think of all that? Well, if you were in IT, which team would you like to join, the slow team or the fast team? Which one would you like? <laughs> if I guess I'm, if I'm nearing retirement and I'm in my last year, I might say, put me on the slow group. But otherwise, yeah, that yeah, is so the problem. I, I think it creates this this kind of the caste system that mm -hmm. is not – that is. That may be effective short term. I'm not even debating whether it's effective, not effective, or effective. But it creates a rift in IT, uh, and it doesn't. It's not really transformation, right? So, so I am I am in a favor of transforming all of IT. And you may have specific projects where you may pick pick a few people and put them on and say mm -hmm. uh, deliver that. But creating a two different organization, what I've seen all the time is. You create this, and you know it becomes two different organizations. At some stage, the slow IT team starts fighting the fast IT team, yeah. and becomes. A yep. same thing if you create a, a fast IT CIO and a slow IT CIO, or a mm -hmm. chief digital officer or IT, just go for so long, and then you start creating politics within the same organization. Mm -hmm. And IT has to be a collaborator. Now, you know, you mentioned the the central digital the digital nervous system or central nervous system. Mm -hmm. Um, the IT, the CIO role and the IT role has to be the best collaborator. You know, I think um, HR requires IT, communications requires IT, sales requires IT, R&D requires IT. Marketing requires it. So if you're a good collaborator that people come and talk to you and you're able to deliver things for the company, then you, have a, you can become a nervous system. Otherwise, people start forming their own nervous systems. And you have like 30 different nervous systems in the company. Right, right. And so on. So I, I am not a big fan. I mean, I, mm -hmm. there are a lot of times I'm tempted to do that, to say I'm so so frustrated with the space of a project that I say I'm going to hire a completely new set of people, put them somewhere in a room, yeah. separate from this. Uh, but over a long term, it creates more issues. I think uh, I think you need to fundamentally change the culture so all of IT is fast IT. Mm -hmm. right? Well, good, yes. Well, and I was obviously asking you a loaded question. I am a, I am hugely opposed to the idea of bimodal IT. I, I just think it's a terrible idea. And I have seen companies that have, have done, as you say, they'll form like an innovation unit or a group. But inevitably, if it's a success, it ends up becoming part of IT or perhaps all of IT turns into that, where the focus is now customer-centric and external. And I think that's all... Uh, that's kind of the way digital transformation ends up happening, ultimately. Right. Um, yeah. Let us segue into talent strategies and talking about that. I know that you have a lot of passion around the idea of uh, skills to manage across the generations and ways to bring more diversity into IT. Uh, tell me some of the ways that you are approaching it, maybe some of the programs that you're involved with or have driven at Dell or VMware that have been successful in that. Yeah, I, I believe in inclusion, and I, mm -hmm. and I believe that the IT and the CIS, all leaders should champion, be champions of diversity, right? So mm -hmm. sometimes when you when you separate different um, gender or or uh, sexual orientation or uh, race, whatever, mm -hmm. you try to focus on one place and you ignore the other ones. So it's good to focus on certain areas when we have problems for a period of time. But I think generally I like the companies to um, champion inclusion. And that's one of the things we do in VMware pretty well. Is, and, and what I find is the, the hidden truth in, in most uh, technology companies is 
there's not as many women. You know, we are very proud to go from 12% to 20%, but 20%, yeah. 25% is still pathetic, right? I mean, it's uh, it's half of where it should be, perhaps. I know, I know. and it's so, taken 30 years to get to 20%, <laughs> so that's also depressing. So I don't mm. know how to, I mean, maybe, maybe we should pat ourselves on the back or not. I mean, it's it's not mm. it's not something, I'm happy that we're making progress, but, but, but not satisfied at all. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, when you do that, uh, there's so much underrepresentation of, uh, whether it's African-Americans or Latinas and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. And we should be not talking about those. So I think one of the things is, you know, call out the elephant in the room. So, and, 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 the, and the first rule is say what the problem is, even though it sounds a little awkward to say it, and then you can take steps to take care of it, right? Mm-hmm. So on the ageism, there's a, there's a trend that people believe that, hey, we need to get, just get the millennials in. Are we going to need to get some young people in because we have an old organization, it's tired, mm-hmm. and we need to fix it, quick fix how wrong could you be? Mm-hmm. You know, again, there's ageism becomes a big uh, issue as well. We want all the young people. We want all the millennials. We want all the experienced people. We want the middle-aged people. We want all the women. We want, you know, we, we want all the sexually different people or differently mm-hmm. enabled people or the underrepresented minorities. Because we say we have a war on talent. And what I'm kind of saying is, um, you know, if I choose to look in different places, there is really no war. There are a lot of people who are not getting the right yeah. kind of job. Yeah. So in a in a in an area of, uh, where we are fighting for talent, I think that's first is let's look at it this from a business standpoint. We are all looking for good talent. Mm-hmm. If we just change our focus, look in other areas, we can find good talent. Uh, second thing is it's the right thing. I mean, second, the right thing to do. Maybe mm-hmm. that should be the first thing. It's the right thing to do. But uh, importantly, on ageism, what I found is when you work across generations, the output is fantastic. You know, I do something called. Yeah. I mentor a lot of young folks in uh, uh, in Silicon Valley, a lot mm-hmm. of millennials as well, and I tend to learn a lot more from them than they, they seem to learn from me. <laughs> well, you call that reverse mentoring, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, so I'm okay mentoring people because I seem to get a lot more out of it. So whatever time mm-hmm. I have, I don't mind giving back because it seems to be a lot more. It's, uh, my mindset has completely changed just talking to them, and they seem to be right more often than I have been mm-hmm. on career planning, you know, asking for raise, etc. I seem to be naive about all these things, and they seem to be so much smarter than me, right? <laughs> so it's good learning from me, and then, but at the same time, they're obviously getting a value from me because they they keep setting it up over mm-hmm. and over and over. Yeah. So if you have that kind of workforce within the company, I think there is a lot of dynamism you can get, which is very mutually beneficial. Okay. Um, so that's one of the reasons we talk a lot about inclusion, and and we want to. We want, you know, we want IT folks, the CIOs, et cetera, to champion inclusion. Mm-hmm. And do you find that having formal programs built around that, things that are done through HR or maybe through IT, is a better way to approach it? Or do you prefer to kind of get it in everybody's mindset and keep reminding them? Uh, how, do you, how do you structure I, your approach to it? So the, the idealist in me is saying, hey, why can't everybody be nice and good and whatever? And, mm-hmm. and then the HR and everybody can get out of the way. But then the realist in me is saying that, you know, if we don't have some kind of structure and processes, then people would tend to gravitate towards what they've doing, been doing before. Yes. So you need to have metrics and measures and whatever, you know, you need to respect the laws and you need to have HR provide a structure for you. So mm-hmm. that that is so we don't have abuses in place. But at the same time, you know, Hopefully, you know, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, in 10 years and 15 years from now, we don't keep talking about this thing as much as we are talking right now. 
Right. Well, and and let's think um, let's think fifteen to twenty years into the future about what IT organizations are likely to look look like. What sort of skills do you think will be on hand? Uh, what should other CIOs be doing to prepare for or to move their IT organizations into this more this customer engaged, customer centric world where everybody is a technologist? Um, what is that going to mean to the IT org? How do you how do you view all of that? So one, there's a lesson learned from Silicon Valley for me. And when I came here and worked in the East Coast and Europe, et cetera, the difference in Silicon Valley I found is the venture capitalist found somebody technically competent. Uh, you know, a good engineer type person, and then they made him the CEO or her the CEO, and and then they surrounded them with skill sets required to be successful: the soft skills, the marketing skills, the sales skills, etc. That seems to be a very highly successful model. Is get person with the right competence in a digital world. You need to have digital skills. So I believe fundamentally, you need an engineer uh, uh, type person or a technical type of person to be in IT, and more and more of your talent has to be biased. So when I started my career, the, the IT person was you know, largely a geek, a technologist, yes. and then they found out they didn't have the soft skills, so they went all the way back to say, let's hire generalists and business people. Mm -hmm. The pendulum has gone too far the other way, right? So we have project managers, we're managing project managers. I call them check the checkers, you know, you have check yeah. the checkers and check the checkers, uh -huh. and then we, <laughs> then we outsource it, right, to somebody else that's yes. far away. And no wonder you don't have agility. So I think the pendulum has to come very sharply to, you need to have, all from the very top, you need to have competent, technical, digital people mm -hmm. because the tech, tech is changing so fast. Without a passion, interest, and some kind of background in it, it's very difficult to keep up. Mm -hmm. But then you need to have leadership skills and soft skills and other right. things you need. So I would make a right shift towards that. I would make a right shift towards insourcing mm -hmm. uh, because IT is so so important to your company. Digital is so important to your company. You can't just outsource it and offshore it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So those are two things I would do is, you know, right shift it. And then then teach the people, you know, send them to the proper training, teach them on all the other skills required because there, there is a sophistication required to manage an organization this large and this big as well. Yes. Well, yes, and I, I can remember back when, uh, you know, stories that – Gosh, we probably read them from Computer World back in the 1970s and 80s. A lot of the CIOs who would be interviewed would talk about how they came into IT through different doorways. They came in through the business, and they got trained up in it. But then I remember in the 90s, late 90s, there was a bit of a crisis building because a lot of CIOs actually didn't come out of technology and they were getting into extremely into deals like around ERP that were not good for their companies so there was a lot that's when it was the heyday of CIOs who had a two and three year lifespan because right. it turned out that they those complexities of managing technology were a bit lost on people that just came in with an MBA yeah, that, that's true. And then what is happening now, there's a trend that I see is where almost every traditional company wants to hire a Silicon Valley person, a CIO to yeah. run it, which is a good idea. I think they want to get a digital technical person. It's a good idea. But what is equally true is not everybody in Silicon Valley in, has gone through a company of that scale, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to run a Honeywell or a Chase Manhattan Bank or, or a pharmaceutical company, it takes a lot of uh, skills and sophistication to run it. So we have a unique problem where you have a lot of people who are technically good, who know digital transformation. They are coming from Silicon Valley. But remember, these companies have grown in five years and 10 years yeah. or max 20 years. 
and they don't have the scale and breadth in manufacturing or supply chain of a large company. Mm -hmm. So we have an interesting situation where we have, I think the CEOs now kind of are focused on getting this digital person, but there's a severe shortage of digital person who can, who can handle the scale. Yeah. So we have to go through a period where we train the technical, the digital people on how to run scale. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that's easier than, than the other way around is what I believe. Mm -hmm. What sort of when you when you hire in people that are much more deeply technical and then you train them up in leadership and people management type skills, do you have – is there like a, a, a Dell or VMware university or do you bring in exterior trainers? How do you actually – produce that? How do you how do you turn technologists into great leaders and managers? Yeah, first, is the raw materials is you should have a passion for technology. You have to have the skill sets to do it. That's one. Mm -hmm. The other raw material is high energy because mm -hmm. it's very difficult to make somebody manufacture high energy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I call them I call them the chi givers, the guys who give energy to other people. You know, you see some people, they smile at you and you feel energized. Yeah. And then you see a few people who, who you look at and you feel de-energized completely. <laughs> they definitely, bum you out, huh? <laughs> yeah. You definitely don't want leaders to kind of take the energy out of people. You know, at, yeah. at a minimum, be neutral. But it will be nice if you actually kind of engage and, and mm -hmm. are positive on people. So there are some raw materials you need is one is one is and you know of course integrity and, and mm -hmm. cultural values and etc. Then the skill sets we have, you know, we have uh, we have programs internally whether it's DMA University or Dell University that we do. We send people to to colleges. We have a relationship with colleges okay. that we have built pretty close to. We send it to your magazines and mm -hmm. your 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 community and mm -hmm. uh, I set up a lot of uh, mentorship with uh, CIO, fellow CIOs as well, you know, a lot of my friends kind of mentor a lot of my folks who work for them. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty formal training. We do it not only for IT people, right? If you look at a lot of the engineers we hire, mm -hmm. a lot of the, I, I wouldn't, a lot of the CEOs we've hired have come back and have gotten training in financial um, accounting and, and uh, you know, MBA type program. Mm -hmm. And so you should have an aptitude to do all that as well. So. Right. But we find it, I mean, it's good if you have all of this right out of the gate, but it's, if you find it easier to go the other way around than, than, than mm -hmm. taking somebody with just soft skills and then trying to, to teach them technology. Well, I can remember years ago at Computer World, a few times we tried to hire in a technical expert in a particular area. Networking was especially difficult to write about. And we tried a few times to hire in someone who really understood technology and teach them how to be a reporter. And yeah. it turned out that it was an entirely different mindset. And reporters, by their very nature, like to dive into a subject. They interview everybody. They gather their knowledge from the people around them. Whereas when you had technical experts, they tended to kind of be know-it-alls. <laughs> so they thought they already, and they couldn't recognize a good story if it fell on their heads. So you're right. I mean, there's certain things that you you have an aptitude for or you don't. Right. But plus, plus, you need to be able to sit next to this person on a bus on a long journey, yeah. right? I mean, that's important. And <laughs> Does no it have to be a bus? <laughs> or, or your corporate jet, you know. Okay, uh, better, better. But you don't want to feel like you want to push this person off the plane, right? So no matter how technical <laughs> brilliant you are, you need to have that skill set that people actually want to come and sit next to you, right? Yeah. That's nice. I like that. You'll have to put that on your your top ten list there, and uh, let's uh, we're well we're getting close to our time. Let's talk about uh, actual technology. Some of the hottest stuff, the emerging technologies that you are watching these days. I know AI is not new to you. Your master's thesis was about artificial intelligence 
couple of decades ago, right? But AI and Internet of Things and robotics, those are all significantly hot areas in technology right now. So tell me what your take on them is, and are they already, uh, how much are these things already finding their way into your products? So let me give you some positives first before we go into the hype. You know, okay. my when I was doing my AI, voice recognition was considered AI. I mean, we could, I could not make simple devices that could recognize mm -hmm. voice, right? You know, mm -hmm. hello. And you have to repeat it 100 times, do training on this uh, several years before it even did anything useful. But you can tell that the kids are coming these days and walking up to appliances and either touching them or talking to them. Yes. You know, and they're mm -hmm. frustrated when, when it doesn't do things. You know, turn on TV, turn on lights, etc. So we tend to forget this. So the, my definition of AI is is things that the computers cannot do today is my definition of AI. Mm. Because we quickly forget that that is AI. That's what AI was when I started with voice recognition. You know, able to talk and understand human language was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Natural language processing. The other one was vision systems, right? I mean, it was so difficult to do vision systems. You can see the days when you look at your phone and it, it, you know, it recognizes you and it unlocks your phone. Your computers yeah. are doing everything. Uh, so we're going to work on edge and IoT where, you know, when you walk in through a door, it's going to open the door. You don't, you don't put a badge in mm -hmm. and, you know, I would open the door and um, you don't, I'm, I can see a days when you don't need locks on your home. You know, when you come in, it'll open the door and if anybody else comes in, it won't open the door. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure I'll still put a padlock on because I'm old fashioned, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's going to be more for a psychological reasons than reality. You have it as so, a, ba it's a backup system. It's a your backup padlock. System. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I think that's AI. So AI is growing pretty uh, pretty well. On the Internet of Things, the issue you have is the first generation of Internet of Things. We're just enabling things. We're just putting sensors on things, right? So mm -hmm. you have a doorbell that kind of you know says there's somebody into your doorbell and shows it on your phone, and your thermostats is now programmable. Mm -hmm. But they're all telling you too many things, right? I don't want the things to talk to me. I want the things to do their thing, ah, <laughs> right? So you you want things to automate processes that you shouldn't have to worry exactly. about. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm putting AI on and, and, and intelligence on the edge. So I have more time to play my guitar or more time to think or, mm -hmm. or be lazy. Is my idea of what a combination of AI and the future of AI and IoT should be is don't keep on telling me there are problems. Don't tell me, don't tell me there's a dog in front of my door or... Mm -hmm. Something else is happening. You go figure out. You talk to the utilities company and figure out how you can save three hundred dollars a month for me, right? And, and I then, want the and then just that, have the savings show up on my bill. Just show up on my bill, yeah. you know. And mm -hmm. The nice thing about the IoT devices, they don't even take credit for it, you know. So don't even take credit for it, <laughs> like they're, a human would. They're like quieter. Wants, yeah, they're a lot quieter yeah. than AI stuff. Yeah. So I think the future would be, you know, making all these things intelligent. And and uh, you heard about expressions like. What if these walls can talk, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, the walls are talking. I mean, the walls are listening, and they can't talk right now. Yeah. But they're just, you know, chattering right now. I, I want them to do intelligent things to say. Mm -hmm. So when when it comes in, and maybe it knows this room knows it's me, and this is a light I like, and this is what temperature I like, and mm -hmm. tells me how often I've been in the office and not in the office, and how many people are in my office at the same time, and mm -hmm. occupancy rates, and etc. So smart buildings. I think this, yeah. It, yeah, it's mm -hmm. going to explore the, the the use cases that we have on application of technology on on the various things that are happening. Yeah, and what I'm telling the IT folks is to say is it's also time to step out of back office. Don't go into the comfort zone of 
let me enable the ERP, the Wi-Fi, the technology, the, the network, get it all working. But mm -hmm. this is more exciting. This is part of digital transformation is get involved with the business and say, if I can make all these sensors and other things stop, yeah. I can make the things more intelligent. What can you do? Mm -hmm. Well, and you had mentioned, uh, too, that uh, you've got research going on in troubleshooting expert systems and that that was something. Uh, what can you tell us about that? What sort of problem are you trying to solve and uh, how is that going? Yeah, the practical things that we're doing in AI, if you look at it, is one is, the, one is you know, we get a lot of calls and people want help with a lot of things that we do. Mm -hmm. So we want, we have set up these bots that everybody else seems to do where we don't, we, we want the customer to get good satisfaction of the calls. It's not cost savings. We want the customer to get the problem solved even before it becomes a ticket. So that's going reasonably well, early stages, but it's going reasonably well. And mm -hmm. our goal is, is uh, customer satisfaction rather than saving money in that context. Wouldn't it be nice that there's a problem, the device themselves call you back and say, you know, hey, this, you want me to fix this for you, mm -hmm. rather than you placing a call. So that's, that's a good use case of uh, um, AI and machine learning, and it gets better and better over time. The, uh, the other thing is, it sounds very mundane, but we did not automate all jobs. Some jobs we just moved overseas or outsourced because we didn't mm -hmm. have time to automate. Some of the mundane jobs, whether it's payables or accounts payables or receivables, or you know, we created these back office jobs and back office processes because IT did not have time to automate everything uh, at one stage. It's a good time. There's technology now to do automating those jobs. Mm -hmm. may not look fantastic, but, you know, you have to scale with automation. You can't scale with people. So right. it's a good chance. The mundane, the mind-numbing jobs that people don't want to do, uh, you have AI systems now uh, that you can automate those mm -hmm. jobs. So there's another focus on that. Yes. And then over time, you want to have true expert systems. But I truly believe some of the most complicated problems you have, the computers can solve it better than humans can. Mm -hmm. But that's not where we are. We are trying to solve some smaller problems to get started. Right, right. Well, that's why 10 years from now, something will come out and it will be a big overnight sensation that the industry's been working on for 15 years. Exactly you know, right. That's generally, that's the way that often goes. Uh, what about in the whole data analytics area? How, uh, considering the two enterprises that you're managing, how do you, mm -hmm. what is your governance process for all of the data, especially that is reflecting what's happening with your customers? And do you have a chief data officer? How do you manage all of that? Yeah, we do. We do have chief, chief data officer. Both companies have a chief data officer. And mm -hmm. I think this is my opinion, to be honest, this is an experiment that every company is trying. Okay. So it's a very hard thing to hire a chief data officer. But what you have to be careful is sometimes you hire the data officer and put him in sales organization or finance organization or other mm -hmm. kind of places. You don't want to have too many chief technology people in so many different places. You don't want to have a CIO running IT, then a chief data officer with finance or somebody else, mm -hmm. and a CTO, a chief digital officer, a chief security officer. How many chiefs? Can a CEO manage, right? So <laughs> exactly. at some stage, and that's not even the main business functions. That's just the technology stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's all subdividing. Yeah, yeah. I have a feeling at some stage you got a person who's a chief technology person for you, which happens to be CIO or CTO or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you need to consolidate under those because I find these experiments are going to go somewhere, and and who do you think really understands the the, the process behind it and and then the people don't have a career path. They start forming their own data scientists and hiring more people and mm -hmm. so on. And mm -hmm. 
And I, I, my prediction is this is going to collapse back into the IT organization sometime. I mean, it sounds controversial, but we've seen this story several times before where we're trying to organizationally solve a problem that needs you know, some kind of support from the rest of the IT organization, yeah. if you will. So well, we are doing experiments, but I, you know, my own belief as I look through this to say is, uh, you know, it's okay. I mean, it doesn't, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, at this time, I'm a senior statement. I'm trying to support and make sure all the chief data officers and chief security mm -hmm. officers, chief digital officers are all successful because they all work for us and I want them to be successful. Yeah. But at this stage, you got to know how do you get this together. Mm -hmm. so, or, but I think we are trying to address it with an organization. Um, the issue really is a lot of companies haven't still solved the small data problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Leave alone the big data, the customer master is still a mess, the product master is still a mess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, still trying to organize around those kind of issues, basic issues that ERPs were supposed to fix and CRM systems were supposed to fix right. and so on. So if there's a little bit of going back to basics. There's also metrics missing. So I talked to a lot of people. They say our master data is a mess. So if I ask mm -hmm. them how much of a mess it is, and is it 80%, 70%, 30%? They can't answer that. Mm. And what if I make it 100%? If your master data is 100%, how much more revenue can you generate? No yes. answer. So sometimes there's a lot of things that are a mess. My conference rooms could be cleaner than they are. <laughs> but what do you get out of it? You know, if I, if I make yeah. it really stick and span. So I think those kind of, it's not because of people problems. It's we are missing certain processes and measures, I believe. And we're getting better at it. We are learning. Data is very important. It's very critical. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt about it. Um, and I think instead of buying tools, we have to spend a little bit more time on, you know, how to fix the process issues on data. Yes. Well, the process and then make sure you have the right people doing the right things right. with data. Uh, just if we're going to apply the Basque-Ire approach to senior management, that's what you do, right? Look at the process a little bit backwards. People and then tech. People, then process, then technology. Um, right. Let us, uh, let's wrap up with just a, a little uh, quick talking about everybody's most misused word in the industry, which is innovation. Mm -hmm. I have tended to feel over time that innovation is really about solving problems and showing some kind of result from it. I almost feel like we see innovation in the in hindsight, where you make a change and it's been a big success and you can say, well, that was innovative. But everybody's got different philosophies on it and everything. And what is yours? I mean, what is the best way for a CIO to make sure that innovation is happening all around? Yeah, I think the first is a mindset. So, um, mm -hmm. So I think my team would pretty clearly know that, you know, I do have a bias towards innovation. I have an interest towards innovation, mm -hmm. whatever your definition is. So the younger folks, the newer folks, the older folks, every, people want to come and talk about innovation to me, right? They have five minutes, 10 minutes with me. They can talk about some process problems or, or mm -hmm. operational problems. They quickly realize that they are empowered to take care of those. And when they have time with me, they want to talk about would the world be a better place? if we can do this? Wouldn't our customers or our colleagues have a better experience if they can do this? Mm -hmm. So this ability to dream is what I call kind of innovation, right? And then then you can put a practical, and, and my, my dad and mom were wrong. When I was growing up, they told me not to daydream, and they told me I should study. Mm -hmm. They were wrong. I, I think what seems to be missing now is people who have the ability to daydream. You know, you need the smart, lazy people who say, yeah. wouldn't the world be a better place if we can automate this or not do this? Yep. So, um, so that's kind of my definition of innovation is have a bias towards it, be passionate about it, talk about it, and then 
encourage people to talk about it and create that environment around it. Mm-hmm. And then things start happening because people, and, but I also do, I don't give them money. Right. <laughs> Just throwing innovation. I mean, sometimes necessity is a matter of invention. So you need to create mm-hmm. a constraint. Uh, so, uh, and, and ideas don't cost money. So I first ask them before I give you money, what would you do if you had the money? What are your ideas? And, yes. What are your ideas? That's yeah. free, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so you make bets on people who have shown some small successes. It's almost like a VC model. Is uh, There are a lot of people who believe they're innovative, but they can't deliver. So ask them for ideas, encourage that, and mm-hmm. then make small bets, you know. And then the people who are successful, I make bigger bets with them. Yes. And, and they know that that's kind of works. Well, and that actually maps to what I've heard from CIOs who have had the most success at innovation. It's never done with great big teams. There's no big formal structures that drive it forward. Sometimes there's a mix of outside training. I know one CIO who took all of his senior leadership team members, and they all went away for a week and got training in improv so that they would improve their storytelling. And I just, I thought that was brilliant. That was something that was like right outside the box and it made them all better communicators and it made them look in terms of pitching ideas. And that's the kind of thing that a lot of times is foreign to technology people. The idea they're, uh, you know, they're very oriented toward, well, what's the problem and here's the steps to solve it because you're, you know, you're all kind of methodological thinkers. I love the idea of, you know, a little more time daydreaming. Um, I recently, I've been recommending this to everyone I've, I listened to these podcasts on the TED Radio Hour, and there was one that was recorded in February of 2018, and it's called Slowing Down. And it was Uh a number of speakers who have done a lot of people that have written books and done research about how beneficial it can be to procrastinate on ideas, to let them nurture and grow a little bit and to think about it for that, you know, the fast and slow thinking is another good book on that. Oh, nice. I think that's something that's really hard for CIOs to do because of the pace of the rush that is always kind of in your faces. So that totally. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of wonderful stuff going on. And for someone who has two and a half to three jobs, you don't even look like you're having a nervous breakdown. So kudos, <laughs> kudos to you, Basque. <laughs> no, thank you very much. I had a great time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, there is a bit of nervousness hiding. You don't you don't see the bottom half of me. You just see my face. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of pretty fingers, you know, under the table. Well, and it was a lot of great advice that you shared. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Mary Fran. Yes. And thank you to our listeners who have stuck with us this far. If you came a little later into the show and would like to experience the entire interview with Bass Geyer, uh, please check to by tomorrow. We will have it posted on CIO.com, where you can also find other episodes from the CIO Leadership Live uh, series. Now, our next one coming up is scheduled at the end of November, November 26th. I'll be talking with Vince Kellen, who is the Chief Information Officer at the University of California, San Diego. And I believe a little earlier in the month, we're going to have someone else scheduled as well. So watch for our promotional activities around CIO Leadership Live. And if you're interested in downloading an audio podcast of my conversation with Basque, please check out Google Play or SoundCloud or iTunes, and you'll find us there. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.